Good morning. It's great to be with you again, I should say. I had the joy of being here about a year ago when uh, your beloved pastor was installed here. I had the joy of uh, meeting some of you and enjoying some of your wonderful hospitality and kindness. It's a particular joy to, to be invited now to open up God's word to you from Exodus 40. Thank you for reading uh, that most excellent chapter so well, uh, sister. Um, I bring you greetings, first, uh, first of all, uh, from the saints at Risen Christ Fellowship. Um, you don't know many there, uh, and, and they don't know many here, but we pray for you often and pray that the Lord will continue to work in and through you uh, in your spheres of, of influence here in this city. Chapter 40 of Exodus read in full. A, a few weeks ago, it was this chapter that brought our 48-week sermon series to an end uh, in Philadelphia. Uh, Exodus 40, the last chapter of the book. On to a new sermon series, that is. We're now in the book of Ephesians. Wonderful new book uh, to go through. One of the things we've considered, however, as we opened to Exodus 40 and realized this is the end of the book, we were quick to realize that this is not the end of the story. It does mark the end of the book. You turn the page and it reads Leviticus. Exodus is, is done. That book, it comes to an end. But it's not the end of the story. And I, I trust you know this from your own reading. You can come to the end of a book and you know that you come to the end of the book because there's no more pages to turn or the next thing you read is appendix or afterwards and you know I have come to the end of the book. Children from a young age are kind of giving, are given, given aids to recognize that they are coming to the end of a book when they read the words and they lived happily ever after, right? When, when you read those words, you know I've, I've come to the end of this book uh, on to a new story. Uh, if you're an avid reader, you know that you can come to the end of a book and realize that you're not at all at the end of the story. Uh, I trust that some of us in our midst have read through uh, Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. If you come to the end of that first book, The Fellowship of the, of the Ring, you realize that this cannot be the end of the story. And, and so it is with the second Two Towers. You read through that wonderful book and you come to the end and realize this too cannot be the end of the story. It's only when you come to the third and final volume in that series, The Return of the King, that you read this book and see all loose ends tied up. Nothing that must be done is left undone then you realize you've not just come to the end of the book, you've actually come to the end of the story. When does a story come to an end? When is the plot resolved? I suggest that it happens when all tension is taken care of, when all loose ends are tied up, when everything that must be done is done and completed. Saints, Exodus 40 brings... Exodus to a close. But I would suggest that the storyline of Exodus continues, so much so that the storyline of the book of Exodus continues unto this day. This day, until the very end of the day, the storyline that is developed and un unfolding in the book of Exodus is ongoing. It, it means as much that our lived experience of our Christian life uh, on this side of glory, is part of the storyline of this book of Exodus. God redeeming a people for himself, to himself, in order to dwell with them. That, too, is our story. Now, the book of Exodus, don't get me wrong, is the book itself is not about us. But the storyline that we're presented with, even in this final chapter, is very much about us. None of your Christian walk happens in isolation of what was read to us earlier in Exodus 40. The story of the book of Exodus can really be summarized in this wonderful short phrase, from groans to glory. Groaning that starts in chapter 2 
coming to an end in beholding glory in chapter 40. And saints, is that not our story too? Going from groans to glory. We, we too are, are promised even that we will groan. We will have affliction. We will suffer. But we too will go from that groaning to glory. I want to consider our text this morning under that title, From Groans to Glory. And I have really two simple points that I want us to consider the text in. The book ends, point number one, but the story continues. The book ends, but the story continues. Let me pray before we consider uh, our text uh, and, and dive into God's word. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you, uh, God, for your word that you've given to us, Lord. Now, Father, we, we pray together as your people that you would show us uh, your beautiful work of redemption, even in these pages of Exodus, Lord. And by your spirit, Lord, would you help us to see how Christ has secured for us an eternal redemption. Now, Father, help us to that end. Encourage us, Lord, in the hope and in the surety and in the joy that we have in Christ and his finished work. Encourage us, Lord. Establish us in, in that hope that you have given us in Christ. Now, Father, we ask that you would do that for the good of your people here and for your glory in our midst. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Friends, if, if I'd ask you, what is the climax of the entire book of Exodus? What's the climax of this great book in the Bible? What would your, your answer be? Where does your mind go instantly? There are so many epic and wonder-filled pages in this entire book. It's a great book in the Bible. If I'd have Hollywood answer that question, what is the climax of this book? Well, they'd go to the epic scenes in the book, the, 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 the plague narrative, the splitting of a sea, even, even the, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. They would run with that. I wonder how many of us immediately think of Exodus 40 as the climax of this epic book. Chapter 40, we've just had it read to us. Moses finishing a tent structure and God's taking residence in that tent. That's what this chapter is about. All of the wonders and the amazement of this book of Exodus considered, trembling and smoking mountains, seas literally split in two, plagues, a Passover, other epic scenes. All that considered... Exodus 40 might not jump off the page to you as the climax of the book. But without question, friends, without question, this chapter is the climax of this entire book. The glory of God filling the tent of the tabernacle. It's given to us in merely two verses. Verses 34 and 35, it's, it's printed there in your bulletin. And no grand description, per se, no trumpets, no trembling mountains. It's almost presented as a mere afterthought-like thing. But if you know the entire story of the book of Exodus, you know that this event is the moment that this storyline has all been working towards. This is what we've been waiting for. And I think for us to appreciate and even understand the weight of what happens here in Exodus 40, the significance of this scene, I think it'd be good to spend some brief time reviewing and how we got there. And how striking, saints, it even is that there is an Exodus chapter 40 for us. How striking is it that we even have this chapter in our Bible? In all seriousness, if this book were written by a mere human author, this book would have ended way before would you open your Bibles up to Exodus chapter 2? And I'll just read two verses there. Exodus 2, verses 23 to 24, it reads this. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. 
And they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. That's where the storyline begins. Groans in bondage, in slavery, cries that therefore go out to God, and God heard, and God knew, and God remembered his covenant. That's where this story of redemption and this story of mercy uh, picks up. And in the midst of deep darkness, in the midst of bondage and depression, God makes his entrance into this beautiful narrative of this book. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who is faithful. The God who had come down to do what? to redeem his people so that they might dwell with him and he with them. And that's exactly what the Lord seeks to demonstrate through what's happening next. A little further in the book, Exodus 7 to 12, we read this so familiar section of God's acts of judgment on Egypt, better known as the ten plagues. God pours out his wrath, his just judgment, divine judgment on Egypt for their refusal to acknowledge God as God's, for their refusal to turn to him, for their oppression on his chosen people. But in the middle of judgment on Egypt, we see that the Lord is with his people. It's very clear in and throughout this plague narrative. Consider plague seven, hail in Exodus nine. Only the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. God was with them. At plague nine, darkness, just a chapter later. Darkness in all the land of Egypt, three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. God was with them. It will become this resounding refrain of the book of Exodus. God had come down to be with his people. It's, it's seen everywhere. And of course, we see all of this come to a head at this, in this final plague, the 10th plague that leads to the Passover. God's justice and wrath poured out on the firstborns of the land. But this divine judgment passed over his own people. What did not pass over them was his mercy. An absolute highlight of the book. But it's not the end of the book. The narrative continues. The people of Israel, though passed over and embraced in mercy, were still in Egypt. And so what follows this Passover is the actual exodus out of this land, followed by this remarkable event at the seashore. I'm sure you know it well. Here again, this this resounding refrain of God's presence with his people is clear. A sea split in two, one final act of rescue from Egypt. And then in Exodus 15, appropriately so, this entire chapter is a song. Both Moses and Aaron and Miriam and the people, they burst out in song. Why? Well, the Lord had delivered them. We know this song as the song of Moses. And let me just read a couple of things, a couple of lines from this beautiful song. They sang, the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. Appropriate response to God's rescue. I think the people were tracking with what was going on. God had a plan and they recognized this is the God of our fathers. This is now my God. This is the God of my salvation. He has done me good. He deserves my praise. He deserves my affections. It was a song of redemption, a song of mercy, and a song of a glorious rescue. A song that was marked or marked, that marked that God was with them, that they knew. Saints, personally, I think it would have been a wonderful place to just end the book of Exodus right there and then. 
The people were out of the land. They were redeemed. They were with their God, and they lived happily ever after. You can just put a bow on it and call it good, in a sense. But that's not what happens. That's not what happens. Quite the opposite actually unfolds as the narrative guides us into the wilderness. People still rejoicing in what the Lord had done. People still rejoicing in it. The Lord was with them. Until, that is, we arrive at Exodus 17. This is where we read, I think, one of the lowest points in the entire book. Exodus 17.3. The people thirsted here for water. The people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you, Moses, bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Saints, the moment circumstances change, the moment that they are put in a place where they have to walk by faith and no longer can walk by sight, the moment water runs out, the God who had so beautifully and powerfully redeemed them, the God who had so clearly provided for them, the God who provided or demonstrated so clearly that he was for them and more importantly, he was with them. He instantly no longer was the object of their trust, nor the object of their affections. It was acting as if God was not there at all. So they get with Moses. And here we read this awful statement hurled out by the people of Israel. It goes like this. They go to Moses and hurl out, Is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or what? We uh, must not understand this to be a genuine question. This is not a sincere way of seeking whether God was with them or not. There was no faith-filled heart that produced this question. This was a faithless, grumbling, and almost Egyptian-like rebellious heart cry on display in God's people. It was a rhetorical question that they themselves would have answered, clearly the Lord is no longer among us. Exodus 15, 16, and 17, friends, this rebellion, this grumbling, this unbelief could have been met with judgment, just as God had done on Egypt. Isn't this then the place where this narrative in Exodus should have ended? God striking down a rebellious people. He had every right to do so, judgment on a people that act out in a way as if God was not with them. Isn't this then where God would maybe come to realize that this plan of redemption was not going to continue? Uh, would this be the point that God maybe considered that these were not the right people he picked from all the peoples on the earth? Friends, thank God. Thank God that even when his chosen people stumble and fall, and proved to be hopelessly in need of mercy, we see that God faithfully continues to walk with them, continues to guide them, continues to provide for them. And this narrative of mercy and redemption just keeps going. The story of Exodus is unfolding off to Mount Sinai now, giving of the law, entering into covenant with these rebellious people. And, and, and they're yet again... Again, we're, before we even have time to recover of the unfaithful rebellion that happened just then and there in Exodus 17, two chapters later, we, we see yet another reason, found like solid ground provi provided for the Lord to end this, this narrative of Exodus right there and then, turning to another God, not wondering whether God is with them. They, they make themselves a, a calf. They, they, they make themselves a god. They whore after another. It's another scene, another instance in this unfolding story where we could have easily seen the book end in divine judgment. But this narrative of Exodus keeps going. Why does this story keep going? The short answer is mercy. He is a God, merciful 
and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And God had come down, set out to faithfully fulfill his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to redeem a people to himself, to bind a people to himself, and then he would dwell with them, and they would dwell with him. Saints, is the Lord among us or not? That rebellious question hurled out in unbelief in Exodus 17 That is the question that God answers in Exodus 40 with mercy. Is the Lord among us or what? What does the chapter reveal to us? Yes, the Lord is among us. And not merely in the glory seen on top of Mount Sinai. There's this extravagant scene of power and majesty and glory. No, here in Exodus 40... He is with his people, among his people, in great glory, but intimately among them, dwelling with them so that they would dwell with them. And and the striking thing is that this ought not to be a surprise to us. This has been God's plan all along. If you open your Bible to the very first pages of the book of Genesis, we find out that God desires to dwell with his people. This is how the Bible starts in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve dwelling with God. Adam and Eve intimately enjoying fellowship with the, in the midst of the glory and perfections of God. A fellowship and communion, a dwelling place that sin horribly undoes. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve fall into sin. They are removed from this perfect dwelling place with God, removed from God's holy presence, because sinful man has no place to dwell with a holy God. God himself drives them out. Dwelling between God and men, undone. Friends, this is what makes Exodus 40 so incredibly significant. It's the first time since the fall in Genesis 3 that God yet again dwells with his people. That is ultimately, ultimately what this chapter is about. As imperfect a picture it may be, it speaks of a garden-like, Eden garden-like dwelling between God and man. And I think it's actually clear from the text that Moses seeks to draw our attention to just that. Let me show you how. Exodus 41. When is the tabernacle established and erected? We read in the first month, on the first day of the month. In other words, in the beginning of something new, the tabernacle was erected. And who does all this? Saints. Verse 18. We're told Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases. He set up its frames. He put in its poles. He raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it. It's all Moses. At least so it reads. Friends, I think it's fair to assume that practically this is not what actually happens. I don't think we must understand this as all the people standing by You're rooting on this old man, Moses. You do that, Moses. You're almost there. Keep keep going. Keep up the good work, Moses. I don't think that's what happened at all. It's a massive tent structure. This is not a one-man job. I think it's safe to say that we must understand this setting up of the tabernacle being done under the direct oversight of Moses instead. Though the work is done by many hands, it's overseen by Moses. However, in the narrative, the work attributed to Moses and to him alone, what what does that mean? What what is that pointing to? Why would Moses write of himself this way? Well, I don't think it has anything to do with him wrongfully boasting about things he himself did not do. I think this is Moses intentionally and stylistically drawing attention to the creation narrative. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is Genesis 1.1. Exodus 40, verse 17 and 18. In the first month, on the first day of the month, in this day of new beginnings, 
Moses erected the tabernacle. What's more, there's seven stylistic subsections in our text. I'm not sure if you picked up on it when the text was read to you. Seven sections, all ending with the same concluding statement. So and so Moses did, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Seven sections mirroring the seven days of creation in Genesis 1. I think it's clear that this has to be read in parallel with the creation account. And then at the end of the construction of the tabernacle, we read it again. Consider how in Genesis, at the end of creation, in Genesis 2-2, we read, On the seventh day, God finished his work. Exodus 40-33, at the end of the tabernacle account. So Moses finished the work. I don't think that's any coincidence, friends. I think this is Moses, a wordsmith at work under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, carefully constructing a narrative that, that is mirroring the creation account. Saints, this is significant. Everything we read between verse 1 and verse 33 in Exodus 40, we can understand is kind of a restoration of what once was. Once that perfect garden, imperfectly, as it may be seen in this tent, but its function is the same. The dwelling place of God, God among men, was now, for the first time since the fall, being restored. What unfolds in our text is absolutely glorious, and the weight of it, theologically, is, is heavy. It's a monumental shift in how God relates to his people. Finally, a place where God again can dwell with his people. And the best part is that he did. When we read, so Moses finished the work, the next thing we read is then the cloud covered the tabernacle. It's finally happening. The glory of God, a, a visible manifestation of God's eternal and invisible fullness enters this tent right in the midst of his people is the lord among us asked in rebellion yes the lord is among us is an answer given to them in mercy yes visibly in their midst in close proximity day and night eden restored, a people free, a God who is with them at all times. And, and saints, what's what just a beautiful verse we find in verse 38. What, what a great way to close this book. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. I mean... What a beautiful ending of this book. It's, it almost has this, and they lived happily ever after ring to it. It almost sounds like the storyline of Exodus has, has found its resolution. It almost sounds like all the tension of the narrative is kind of resolved. It almost seems that all the loose ends have been tied up. Almost. That is, until we realize the significance, I think, of verse 35. I'm not sure if you noticed. It just sits there and kind of glares at us. Moses finished the work. The cloud covered the tent of meeting. The glory of the Lord filled the tent of meeting. And then there it is, verse 35. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting. I mean... What is that? What is that but a terrifying, if you will, lose end to the story? What is that but an undeniable, in a sense, unwelcome, lose end we don't want to be left with? What, what a cliffhanger. I mean, a people redeemed, beholding glory, but far from entering into that glory. A, a tent of meeting, all done. But no meeting is possible. No, no meeting in the tent of meeting. It doesn't even sound right. There it is, a, a restored and finished Eden-like dwelling place for God. 
But his people are still not able to enter in. The end. It, it, it can't be. It can't be. Well, the end of the book, that is. It can't be the end of the story. And praise God, saints, it's not the end of the story. There is actually a far greater story of redemption that we know of. That is, that is coming for us as we keep reading through this book. The story of God's redemption is merely unfolding and starting here at the end of Exodus. Friends, how does this story end? And where does this story end? And how do we find resolution to this unfolding plot? Where are those loose ends being tied up? The question still remains, I think, is when can man enter into this dwelling place of God and dwell with him as he had promised? How does it all end? Well, we got to keep reading. The story continues. Uh, I suggest we could sit here all day and keep reading and see the story unfold in every chapter of the Bible because it does, but we don't have time for that. Friends, what do you do when you're binge-watching a great show and there's this unfolding story that you really want to know how it ends, but you just simply don't have the time to look through it all? What do you do when you're in the midst of a trilogy and, and you just want to know how it ends, but you don't have the time to read through it all? What do you do? Wouldn't you grab the last of the books and just start reading the final chapter? I would. It's kind of cheating and guaranteed we'll miss some details important to the storyline, but let's just do that for a second. Let's skip ahead anyway and consider how this storyline that has come to an end in the book, but the storyline that's continuing actually comes to an end elsewhere in the scriptures. Would you please open your Bibles if you have one on you to Revelation chapter 15? Like all the way forward. Revelation 15. Friends, in this chapter, John, Jesus' beloved disciple, an actual friend of the Lord Jesus, tells us of the vision he received and the vision that he wrote down. A vision that John shows how the world as we know it actually does come to an end. And it's striking. I found this striking with 63 books of Scripture between the end of Exodus and Revelation 15. 63 books of Scripture between them. It's striking to consider how this vision and revelation kind of picks up where Exodus left off. Let me read from Revelation 15, 1 to 8. This is what John the Apostle saw in his vision on Patmos. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also though who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, in the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. I mean, wow. What, what, a, what a scene that John gives. Terrifying in many ways. And, and let me just be very quick to say that there's all sorts of things 
going on in these verses that we just read that we're not going to look at this morning. I suggest you bring all your really, really hard and challenging questions to your pastor David later this afternoon. Uh, but, but I do want us to consider two important things from the text that we've just read from this vision. The ones who are described as standing victorious in verse 2, the ones who are singing this song of praise and redemption, what song are they singing? It's the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. And what they sing, saints, is one song, one song of praise, one song of mercy, one song of deliverance and redemption. And that one song is known by two titles, the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. The song of Moses we've already considered. This is the song that was sung by Israel after the splitting of the sea into freedom, the crossing of that. But then there's the song of the Lamb. We'll get to that in a minute. But what else is happening in the text? Striking. The sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven opened. And out of this tent, out of this sanctuary, come seven angels. And these seven angels are given bowls full of wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Seven bowls, meaning perfection. There's a wholeness. There's lacking nothing in that. God's perfect wrath is seen in that picture. Wrath over sin. And the sanctuary was filled with the smoke. I mean, this is the familiar words we just read in Exodus 40. The sanctuary was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his power. No one could enter the sanctuary until, we're told, until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. In other words, until God's perfect wrath was poured out, until God's wrath was satisfied. Until then, no one could enter the sanctuary. And all of that then finally, finally gives way to that answer we've been looking for. When can man enter into this dwelling place of God? Well, we read that in the final chapter of the Bible, one of the final chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. That is how the story ends. That's where this glorious storyline that, that, that we find in Exodus finally finds its resolution. That's where the loose ends are tied up. When nothing that must be done is left undone. It's a glorious ending. I hear some of you thinking, how do we get there all of a sudden? How did all of that happen? There's a lot of details that we're missing that lead up to this. Are there not? So, well, yeah, well, that's what kind of happens when you skip over kind of the half of the story and go to the very end. You miss out on the important developments. So, so let's just ask the question then, how does this story get there? Well, I think our, our clue is found in Revelation 15:8. No one could enter the sanctuary until, until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Until God's wrath, perfect wrath, was poured out. Until then, no one gets in. Saints, it's, it's quite the same concept we find at the end of Exodus chapter 40. Open up again to Exodus 40. No one, not even Moses, was able to enter into the sanctuary until, if you turn one page in your Bible, you come to Leviticus. Chapter 1, laws for burned offerings. Chapter 2, laws for grain offerings. Chapter 3, laws for peace offerings. And then finally, chapter 4, laws for sin offerings. Moses and Aaron and the priests were eventually able to enter the tent of meeting and meet with God and dwell with him and draw near to him and mediate between the people and, and the Lord. But none of that was possible unless God's wrath was placed on the lamb that was sent out or sacrificed. Access to the tabernacle, being able to draw near to the Lord, both here in Exodus and Leviticus and in Revelation 15, was only possible 
after wrath had been placed on another. And this, friends, this is why we preach Christ and him crucified. This is why we cannot nor must ever stop talking about what it is that Jesus, the Christ, the promised Messiah, has accomplished for us, has finished for us on the cross. This is why our song, saints, is the song of Revelation 15. Yes, we too will sing the song of Moses, because in similar fashion we have been redeemed. But our redemption wasn't secured by Moses. We sing the song of the Lamb because it is in Jesus that we, through faith, have found life. By faith, his death on the cross atoned for you and has given us life. In his death, he died our death. On the cross, he died in our place. Jesus died for sins that he himself did not commit. He took on ours. But good news, he is the, the sinless one dying for the sins of those he came to redeem. Friends, in, in Christ through faith, we have found our Passover lamb. It is in Christ that we have found shelter of the wrath that one day will be poured out on all the ungodly, all those outside of Christ. It is in Christ and in him alone that we come to the Father and live. All of God's redeeming work foreshadowed here in the important Old Testament books that are in front of us. It's all broad to completion and fulfillment in Christ. All the attention that Moses has drawn to himself throughout the book of Exodus. He was the mediator. He was the one who mediated the covenant in, in Exodus 19 and 20. He was the one who established a dwelling place, seemingly single-handedly, in chapter 40. Moses is the man. He is the servant of God. In many ways, the focal point of activity in the entire book of Exodus. I think God is making very clear that he would relate to his people in a certain way. In covenant, through a mediator. I think it's no wonder that all throughout the writings of the Gospels, we see that the Pharisees have come to that same conclusion. The religious Jewish establishment, they were bound to these writings of Moses. Moses was their man. And it, had, it wasn't him that they had placed their hope. They, of course, failed to remember that Moses had said at the end of his own life, after me, after me, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Among your own brothers, it is to him you must listen. Listen to him. And Jesus leaves no room for doubt when he enters the scene. In John 5, Jesus tells the Pharisees, Moses, on whom you have set your hope, if, if you believed in Moses, you would have believed in me, for he wrote of me. Moses, the, the great mediator. A great mediator he was. He died. It's no more. Jesus is the mediator we need. He is all we need. You want to enter into fellowship with God? No one comes through the, to the Father but through me, Jesus says. And though he died, he, he rose and he lives. He is the far greater Moses that has come. He's the far greater mediator that we have actually received from God the Father. Moses gave the law. Jesus did not give the law. He perfectly upheld it. He actually fulfilled it. And most importantly, he paid the penalty for all who cannot and who did not and who will not. That is the mediator that we have received in Christ. All of that has been paid on the cross. That is why we refer to the gospel as good news. Praise God for the cross of Christ, saints. Praise God for an empty tomb. Praise God for righteousness in Christ. As we read in the as we read, rather, in the New Testament reading earlier in the service, in him, Jesus, the, the, the glory of God was embodied. He dwelled bodily. Jesus tabernacled among us, John says. He is the only one who completely obeyed God's law. 
and did so perfectly. And I think it's actually Moses' work here again in Exodus 40 that foreshadows the perfection and the complete obedience of Jesus, our Savior. If you look again at the text, it starts in verse 9. We, we see this ongoing repetition seven times, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 21, verse 23, verse 25, verse 27, verse 29, and finally again in verse 32, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Seven times, in complete obedience, Moses finished all the work. 1,500 years after Moses, Jesus on the cross in perfect obedience to the Father said, I have finished all the work. It is finished was his cry. Flawless perfection, completely fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law. Christ, the dead for us, that we by faith now may be made whole, washed clean, forgiven. Uh, friends, I wonder if, if any of you felt a certain way when I read through uh, the text of Revelation 15. Uh, Revelation, as, as a book as a whole, can be terrifying uh, if you're considering these words outside of Christ. Terrifying. The good news is that in Christ, we may read these words and may not be terrified at all. That's not a fearful scene for us to consider. It's actually a scene that we may anticipate. We will be the ones, as, as we read, singing the song of Moses and the Lamb. We can, we can joyfully anticipate the events that unfold in the book of Revelation. Saints, the truth of that vision in Revelation is already true for you. If you by faith in Christ, have been united to Jesus, that promise of fellowship with God is yours already. We're just not there yet. It's the already not yet paradigm we find throughout the New Testament. And that kind of brings us back to what we considered in the beginning, doesn't it? The storyline of Exodus is really our lived experience as well. Redeemed, yes, but not yet fully experiencing the glory that we are told of in heaven. That's, I think, why Paul helpfully writes to the church things like this. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in us through faith, but we're still awaiting this hopeful return of our Messiah. We too are going from grounds to glory. I don't know your circumstances, but with an open Bible, I can assume that some of you are going through suffering and hardship, loss and grief, pain and sickness, broken relationships, worries, anxieties. All of that can, can cause groaning in us. Friends, the Lord has heard your groaning, just like he did Israel's. He has come down to you, his people, in glory. Not in a tabernacle made with human hands, but in his son. As his dwelling place and the sacrifice to enable us entering into that. If you're anything like me, I, I can be very tempted to think along the lines of, it would be really nice to have that scene like they did in our lives, wouldn't it be wonderful to have a tabernacle-like figure right next to us with this massive pillar of fire by night and a pillar of smoke by day, a, a visible sense of comfort that God is indeed with us, an assurance. My sinful flesh can desire that. The gospel corrects my view and thinking there. Saints, we've been given so much more than that. The tent in Exodus was covered with the cloud, filled with the glory of God. In Christ, you and I are covered and filled, covered with his blood, filled with his spirit. We are made the place where God now dwells. That's a hopeful picture. You are sitting right next to dwelling places in, in, in whom God is pleased to dwell by his Holy Spirit. A foreshadowing, a deposit, a guarantee of the glory that is yet to come, that we will take and acquire possession of. Friends, be comforted. Groaning is kind of promised to us. 
by the Lord Jesus himself. John 16, we read of this. Truly, truly, I say to you, he's, writing, or he's speaking to his disciples, those who by faith follow him. You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful. In other words, you will groan. But, he says, but your sorrow will turn into joy. So also you have sorrow now, he says, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Jesus says that in context of speaking of his death and his resurrection. And in this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Friends, what hopeful things we may look forward to in Christ. The Christian life, saints, is lived in the hope and the surety of the glory that is to come. A glory that will come, and we will acquire possession of it. Ever since the fall, we read in the Bible, all of creation has been groaning, eagerly, eagerly longing for the day that even all of creation will be redeemed, freed from the curse of sin, groaning that will give way to glory. Until then, we have been given a deposit, not just a monetary kind of deposit. We have been given a deposit of God himself in his spirit, sealed, guaranteed. Our groaning will soon make way for song. The song of Moses, the song of the Lamb, eternal glory and joy yet to come, guaranteed for you in Christ to enter into Friends, may you stand firm in that until then. We know how the story ends. It's only a little while. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's Paul for you. From groans to glory, saints. Soon, without groans, in glory. Hallelujah. Let's give thanks. Father, we thank you that we've been considering the, the beauty of the gospel foretold in this book of Exodus, in this final chapter. Thank you, Lord, that this is not the end of your story. Thank you that this is not the end of our story. Thank you that we have glory, glory to anticipate, a presence of, of you and your son that we may be with you and may see you face to face. Father, what a, what a hopeful guarantee you have given to us in the finished work of Christ who has given us access, who has given us rights to that inheritance as, as sons and daughters now. But Father, I pray for this dear church that they would rejoice in what is true for them. They may not see it. They may not feel any feels of, of what that may be like. This world may be discouraging and uh, circumstances may be hard and, and, and terrifying from time to time. Father, would, would you, by your spirit, apply the hope that we have in Christ of an inheritance that is yet to come, dwelling with you, would you apply that and cause them to rejoice and eagerly await the day of the Lord Jesus and his return? Would you do that for their good and your glory, Lord, in Jesus' name? Amen.